and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and we are here looking at March of 1991. Today I'm joined by Chris Slusarenko. He's a musician. His current band is called Eyelids, but he has been in a ton of bands over the years. Yes. You notably have worked with Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in Guided by Voices. And then, uh, and then Boston, Boston Spaceships. Spaceships mm-hmm. And then takeovers which was my music and bob singing on it carbon whales which is like an incognito uk fake out that we did and you yeah. know like five records a year yeah you know. yeah <laughs> uh, also when i typed up your notes my wife looked over my shoulder and she's like svelte i saw that band in 1995 How funny. and uh, we dug through the records and i uh, found oh wow yeah that's the single there we that's go <laughs> uh yeah. yeah before this band i was in a a band called Sprinkler that were on Sub Pop in 1991. And then that disbanded. And then this was the next band I was in. So, yeah. And then I kind of took a break and then got obsessed with Got It by Voices and then joined that. And yeah. That's pretty cool that you can get obsessed with a band and then just join it. I'm pretty lucky, you know, like Peter Buck produces the eyelids records Uh and like we get to play with all our heroes dream syndicate charlatans the charlatans put our records out in the uk wow it's really weird yeah as a fan kid you know like i'm still obsessed yeah i was gonna ask you about that at some point do you just feel like you're a a peer of peter buck and robert pollard and these guys or do you always have some kind of fanboy feeling around them it's just the way i was brought up the first time i connected with peter was right before Murmur came out, I bought the Radio for Europe single and wrote a letter to a P.O. Box in Athens. And Peter wrote back with a list of bands to check out, Mission of Burma, Husker Du, Replacements. And then for like three or four years, we just wrote back and forth. And I met him on the Reckoning Tour when they came to town. They got myself and my family in to the sound check and see him afterwards. It was just really grassroots. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, you could do that but these people left such an impression on my musical dna and upbringing you know that even though it's a peer and peter's like in the recording booth with us there's still always a little bit of a nervous geek out moment for the first few minutes for sure cool i should also mention that until somewhat recently you were the co-owner and founder i guess of clinton street video yeah 22 years it closed about a year ago yeah, that was pretty amazing to open a video store at the tail end of kind of what was already burning down. Yeah. Because all the, the little stores were being put out of business at the time by Blockbuster and Hollywood. Right. And so we couldn't get a loan or any, and we couldn't be like, we're going to do something different. It's a great neighborhood, but I was really proud of it. It was such a cool community. Yeah. My friend Charlie Campbell, who was in another sub-pop band called Pond, Mm -hmm. he for 15 years has been a composer for like TV and movies and advertising. And as the video store was winding down, he asked me to come be part of that with him. So it's kind of funny that I'm still involved in music and film after all these years. It's just like, it just never ends. Sure, yeah. I was very fortunate, you know, because I love them both so much. That's really cool. Yeah. All right, well, let's flash ourselves back to March of 1991. Sounds great. The first two weeks of March, Right Here, Right Now by Jesus Jones was still at the top spot, but we heard that last episode. I have a really quick, funny story about Jesus Jones. Sure, sure. So that band I was talking about, Sprinkler, was like, you know, grunge. Yeah. And we were asked to 
opened for this band, Jesus Jones, that we had never heard of uh-huh. in Seattle at this tiny club. And we're like, cool, a band from England. That sounds great. And then they're like, a week later, like, it's been moved to the more. It's sold out, like a much bigger theater. And we're like, oh my gosh, our first show in Seattle. It's going to be crazy. We still hadn't heard him. And driving into Seattle on the radio, we heard him for the first time. And we're like, oh no, like, we are so not the right band. And like, it was our biggest show to date. Lights went out. Somebody with a flashlight takes you out there. And the crowd just screaming so loud. Lights come up. They're like so excited. 30 seconds later, the look of just disappointment and dread on their faces as we, yeah. it was so horrible. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I opened for Jesus Jones. <laughs> nice. That's really cool. <laughs> so yeah, Jesus Jones, two weeks on top, and then they get dethroned by none other than R.E.M. Yeah. This was the first single from their album, Out of Time. You know, we've talked about R.E.M. on the show quite a bit, so I don't want to give their whole backstory again, but just real quick, R.E.M. was founded in 1980 in Athens, Georgia. They consist of vocalist Michael Stipe, drummer Bill Berry, guitarist Peter Buck, and bassist Mike Mills. The last time we heard from them was back in 1989, and that was when they had topped the modern rock charts with their song Stand from Green, their major label debut album. They toured pretty hard on that album for about a year, uh, took a little break, and then here we are in 1991 with their follow-up, Out of Time. This is the album that really took them from being like college rock darlings to global superstars. But it's an album that a lot of people have maybe mixed feelings about. I know a lot of listeners who were into R.E.M. from back in the day, they're kind of disdainful of this album. Yeah, well, it's funny. Most bands that I loved that were around in the 80s burned really hot. Yeah. And then they broke up, you know, after three or four albums. And R.E.M., they were still around. And so you could be as precious as you wanted about it and be like, oh, they're not the same or, oh, they, you know, they lost some mystique. But the truth is that it's kind of amazing that they, out of all the bands, hit the nerve and they deserved it. You know, they worked really hard. Peter said that like they never turned down a radio interview, a press thing, no matter it was morning or night, they kissed the babies, they did, they shook all the hands, even when it was miserable, but they totally made it their job. You know, you can go online and see them having a really awkward morning show Portland interviews where people are like, R.E.M., that's a weird name. What, like, you know, uh, Meat Puppets Uh is another, we have a list of weird band names and they're just sitting there really patiently. Yeah going through it and so out of time was kind of like i think well-deserved pat on the back even if musically it alienated some people it was like you could kind of already see they were going there by the time a document you know sure so the first single off of out of time was called losing my religion it frequently appears on greatest songs of all time lists i've heard it being described as a song that has no chorus although i think you could argue that maybe it is all chorus or at least, you know, the chorus and verse pretty much are the same with some different lyrics. It works. It works, you know, yeah. It's like, why jam a bridge into something that doesn't need it? Sure. You know? The lead instrument is a mandolin, which is unusual for a rock song, for sure. And the record label initially didn't want to release it as the first single, but they did, and it worked out really well. Here it is, a song I'm sure you've heard many times. R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion. That's me in the corner Losing my 
fun. It's I think this song, it's still really not that different than something that would have been like on Life's Rich Pageant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got bigger production, but it's still not incredibly massive. Right. It sounds know. like an REM song. It doesn't yeah. sound like a pop hit. No, and lyrically, it's pushing back quite a bit, you know, yeah. to the listeners. So. Yeah. I should say, losing my religion, apparently, is a Southern expression that means something like losing your temper or being at the end of your rope. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so if anyone was wondering, that's what that is. Michael Stipe has said, though, that this song is about obsession and unrequited love. It seems like their songs are always being misinterpreted, too. Mm, For sure. The one I love is really full of venom, and people are like, couples are arm in arm singing it to the stage or having it played at their wedding. And it's like, oh, yeah, just slow down and really listen. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know. So uh, Michael Stipe also, he has a reputation for mumbling while he sings or uh, frequently singing in a way that it's difficult to figure out what his lyrics are. I think at this point, though, out of time, that is not really true. Right. You can pretty much make out every single word he's singing in the song. Mm-hmm. And that I would say the same is true of probably all the songs on this album. There was a magazine called Musician Magazine. Uh-huh. And I remember when Fables came out, there was an article in it and it just sounded like they were going to break up. There was like, they're talking to Peter and they're talking to Michael. And I remember Peter being like, I just want to be in a band where I can understand this. Like they they were, I want to hear what he has to say, you know? Yeah. I was like, wow. Like, (laughs) don't you bring that up in private? Like, you know, like it's really weird. And then, but it was kind of where they were headed anyway. It's just at the time, it was just like you really just leaned into it, I think. Yeah, sure. So It's not a, a linear progression either because uh, two albums from now, What's the Frequency, Kenneth. Mm-hmm. That I think that's a song that is pretty difficult to figure out what the heck he's singing about. Yeah. And I, I did that one karaoke not too long ago and I was very surprised. <laughs> about that's always lyrics. a treat. Yeah. I've seen, that's one of my favorite things is just I've seen people do like Led Zeppelin and all yeah. of a sudden like they're like, what? Yeah. All right, I guess one more thing about Losing My Religion. This song has charted in the U.S. on the Billboard Hot 100 two other times. In addition to hitting number four with R.E.M.'s own original version, they hit the charts in 2010 with a Glee cast cover version. Oh, wow. And I had no idea. They hit the charts again in 2011 with uh, a version by Dia Frampton, who I guess was a contestant on The Voice. So just a year later, yeah. someone was like, yeah, I'm yeah. And uh, one other thing, this song appeared in multiple episodes of Beverly Hills 90210, including in a pivotal scene early in the show's run, and it played over the entire breakup scene between Brenda and Dylan. Wow. So, Losing My Religion, it's going to spend eight weeks at number one on the modern rock charts, tying their own song, Orange Crush, as the song that spent the most time at number one up to this point. So, no other number ones. But we do have a bunch of other songs that charted highly. So the next one we're going to look at is called I Touch Myself, and it's by a band called The Divinals. This band was formed in Sydney, Australia in 1980, and they've had kind of a revolving lineup. There's only two consistent members of the band throughout the years, and that is singer Chrissy Amphlett and guitarist Mark McEntee. I just was shocked that this came out in 1991. Yeah. Like, if you would have asked me, I was just like, yeah, like, this is early MTV, 84, It kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? I just feel like it's been around and iconic longer than that. 
but I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think of it as being a song from 1991 because I have a distinct memory of going to Burger King with my family mm-hmm. after school one day and they were piping it through the restaurant. And I remember as an 11 year old feeling yeah. slightly scandalized by yeah. the song. Yeah, it is weird when you hear things that are just like either mean or provocative or highly sexual in a very generic setting like a family restaurant. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's a trip. It's kind of funny. You know what I mean? It just becomes something that songs take on a different thing at some point. They're just not even listening to the lyrics right. anymore. They're like, oh, this, I, I love this song. Yeah, and as long as like, you can tap your toe to it and, you know, yeah, head, you're yeah. Like, sure. So I Touch Myself also peaked at number four on the Hot 100. This was the Divinal's biggest hit. Yeah, Did they have other hits? Well, they certainly did in Australia. Okay. In Australia, they've had more than 20 charting singles, oh including God. 10 top 40 hits. Wow. And they've been inducted into the Australia Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And originally they were considered kind of a hard rock band. And uh, Chrissy Amplett was being compared frequently to Angus Young, which is kind of weird. I think it was was more like visually than anything else. Like she was wearing schoolgirl uniforms and moving around on stage in a similar kind of way. But by by the time we get to 91, it sounds much poppier. Like you'd never listen to that and say, oh, this is a hard rock band. Right. Okay. Yeah. I Touch Myself was co-written by Amphlet and McEntee, but they brought in a professional songwriting duo by the names of Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg. And I looked up some songs these guys wrote, and it was amazing. These guys apparently focus on power ballads for female-fronted bands. Mm -hmm. They wrote True Colors. They wrote Alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a big hit for Heart. They wrote Eternal Flame. Wow, yes. Angles. They wrote I'll Stand By You, So Emotional, Like a Virgin. Crazy. Yeah, totally crazy. Ah, that's so interesting. That was female-driven yeah. songs. That's cool. Yeah, and one of those guys by himself wrote Fire and Ice. Is that what it's called? Pat Benatar. Oh, right, right, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they had their focus. It was like, yes, we're going to write songs for women. And uh, Interesting. they apparently did it really well. Yeah, that's a crazy list. Yeah, so when Amphlet and McEntee went to them and said, hey, we're looking for a song, something to be a hit, mm-hmm. uh, apparently they already had most of the lyrics to the song already in their notebook, which is kind of hilarious. I'm just picturing this dude, and he's got, like, I touch myself, right. but, like, written for a woman. Right. But, yeah. What a trip. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Let's listen to it. Okay. I haven't heard it in decades, so I'm really curious to hear it. Yeah. Here it is. The Divinals, I Touch Myself. Crazy that a couple thoughts. One is the intro I, it was so weird. I was yeah. like, maybe I'm remembering the wrong song. It's just really dissonant. And I thought weird. the same thing. It seems like a totally different song. Like it's going to be some kind of cool new wavy something. Yeah, like- I kind of loved it. Yeah, that part, and then it has the tempo and feel of like early to mid 90s rolling stones just that really like weird guitar slashing interplay and kind of laid back i mean it's a really slow tempo yeah 
that's just way more laid back than I remember it. But maybe lyrically, they're just like, well, the lyrics, you know, yeah, it's you pretty, know. pretty in your face lyrically. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they're like, all right, let's just, you know, hang back here. And also the pre-chorus gets so catchy yes. and so complete. And then when it goes into the real chorus, I'm like, oh, yeah, right, this part. I forgot. Yeah. Like, you know, it's pretty damn hooky. It is, you know? for sure. I like the end when there's they're kind of starting to fade out and mm. it's I touch myself, I touch myself. And then a couple of times she just goes, I honestly do. <laughs> just in case we were sure. She, we thought yeah. she was joking. Yeah, and they had the cowbell yeah. to hammer it home too. Yeah. They're like, all right. So. Yeah. After this, no more big hits for them, but they stuck around for a little while. The Divinals did appear in a number of soundtracks. The song appeared in Austin Powers. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Did. Yeah. It did. Uh-huh. It also appeared in Prelude to a Kiss, which is a movie I wish I could unsee. Mm-hmm. It's not one that I enjoyed. <laughs> Chrissy Amplett later was nominated for a Best Female Actress in a Musical in Australia for her portrayal of Judy Garland in The Boy from Oz in 2001. She later in 2013 died of breast cancer. Apparently she had MS and wasn't able to get treatment for her cancer. Oh, so it's wow. kind of like this double whammy. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. And uh, Mac and T just last year attempted to reform the band, but they canceled the tour before it started. And I, I could be wrong, but I think this was due to fan outrage. That's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, that's a really sad story, actually. It's like, is it somebody's right to do this? Right. I mean, it is you his know? band, too, but yeah. it's, it's hard to replace a beloved yeah. lead singer for a band. And It really yeah. is. Yeah, it doesn't tend to be a good idea. But, you know, it, again... He was a pivotal part. He probably wants to keep playing and had success in it. But yeah, that's kind of a sad one. Yeah. This is it's like a frequent thing on the show where I'm like, and eh, this person died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're no. kind of getting to that age, you know, like a lot of people yeah. are. Yeah. They're all, everyone's going to die. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Divinals peaked at number two. We have another band who made it to number three. On the modern rock charts in March 1991, this is a band called EMF. They were formed in England in 1989, and they're often considered part of the Manchester dance rock scene, although they're not technically from Manchester. The name EMF, it is believed by some to stand for ecstasy mother although the band has denied that. Uh, there's other people who think it stands for Epsom Mad Funkers, which is apparently something to do with... Uh, New Orders fan club. Oh, wow. No idea. Yeah. In 1991, EMF released their debut album, Schubert Dip. The name of the album apparently is a pun on Sherbet Dip, which is some kind of popular suite, and the uh, the musician Schubert. Right. The chief songwriter in the band, Ian Dench, he, he said, if I'm ever short of a chord sequence, I nick one from Schubert. So I guess he was a fan Still, I like that's the best you can come up with for an well, album title. How old were they too? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's like you, when you're young. I mean, you rarely come up with the best band name sure. when you're like 18. So EMF released four singles off of Schubert Dip, all of which charted on the Modern Rock charts. What are the others? I don't know any. Oh boy, unbelievable! I believe. Okay. So they're turning things right around there. Sure. Children and lies. Don't know. Any of those except for the one. No. And I was just talking to someone the other day and I mentioned EMF and they're like, I love that band. I love that album, Schubert Dip. 
I wonder why they never put out another album. And I was like, oh, well, they did. They actually put out two more albums and nobody cared, at least right. not in the United States. They did chart in the UK. They made it to number three with a cover of I'm a Believer, the Neil Diamond written yeah, Monkeys song. That, is, that um, song never stops n- no, making it, hits for people. It does not. But I think the uh, their version... It was like EMF, but it was also these two British comedians, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. Oh, I totally knew who they are. You do? Yeah. Oh, so, they're awesome. So it was those guys like singing I'm a Believer what? backed by EMF, hit number three. Okay, they're now my favorite band. <laughs> yeah, Reeves and Mortimer were these really absurdist double act, and they were complete royalty for a certain generation. You know, it would have been like Monty Python or the Young Ones. Yeah. And Reeves and Mortimer were yeah. that to the like... Oasis age, Vic uh, and Bob. Britpop thing. Yeah. yeah. And they're just really fun and dumb. Yeah. <laughs> but full of conviction. That is just weird. Yeah. But I kind of love it. I'm sure. like, okay, cool. All right. Now I have to go buy that record. Yep. You got to track down that single. Okay. All right. So EMF's biggest hit was their first single, Unbelievable. It was humongous. This one actually hit number one on the Hot 100. EMF. So it was unavoidable. Unavoidable. Okay, yeah. Absolutely. And interestingly, it was unavoidable for me. At this time, I'm still, I'm 11 years old. I was not listening to music. We didn't listen to the radio in our house. I didn't have access to music. We did not have MTV. But we would go to the dump sometimes. This is like a big thing, like the annual dump trip. We'd pile in the pickup, the whole bed's full of garbage, drive 40 minutes out to the country to unload our stuff. And while we were there, my dad's dumping out the truck. Uh, My brother and I would just kind of scavenge around in the big piles of garbage. And we stumbled upon a cassette single of EMF's Unbelievable. That's like the first cassette I ever owned. So we we took it home, put it in, and and I was like, "Whoa, I'm into this song. This is uh, so catchy." That could have been a music video. Yeah, people like at the dump, and then they like find a cassette single, they put it in, and then the song starts, and then people jump through the window. Yeah, the the seagulls are flying overhead. People, yeah, the band comes out of the bathroom, starts playing. Wow, missed opportunity. Uh huh. All right, so this song is interesting because it features a number of samples. And one of those samples, the second I read it, I'm like, of course, of course it's sampling Andrew Dice Clay. You'll hear someone just going, oh! Oh. And I always assumed that... Oh, okay, that's Andrew Dice Clay. That's Andrew Dice Clay. And also, later in the song, there's kind of a spoken word, it's unbelievable. unbelievable. Also Andrew Dice Clay sample. That is nuts. Yeah. So they were... Really into comedians. Yeah, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but maybe I do because I like getting sidetracked. But March 1991, which is what we're talking about right now, that was the month that the 11th annual Golden Raspberry Awards were given out, which is like an annual worst movie Ooh, Can award. I guess what it is? Please do. The Adventures of Ford Fairlane? That's it. All right. Uh, it was that's actually, why I owned a video store. <laughs> that's right. That was actually... It's, it, was a, it was a tie this year. There were two okay. worst movies. So one of them was... Uh, the Andrew Dice Clay vehicle, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and he also won the Worst Lead Actor <laughs> Award. The movie that tied was the movie that the Worst Supporting Actor was in, and that supporting actor was none other than our current president, Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. All right, this is a movie I had not heard of, and it's called Ghosts Can't Do It. No, but I'm going to go find it tonight. Yeah, I, I need to watch this movie. And it's literally yeah. about a woman whose husband dies and he becomes a ghost, 
but he can't do it with her. Uh-huh. And so like they come up with some crazy scheme so she can do it with her husband again. That's but, amazing. Yeah. What a tie. Yeah. Because one of them was very big film and the other one I've never even heard of. Yeah. Wow. Good company. Yeah. But that's amazing. Like this is 1991, Donald mm. Trump. He, yeah. he wins a Worst Supporting Actor Award for playing himself. This many years later, leader of the free world. Wow. I don't know whether that'll laugh or cry, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to find that film. Yeah. Here it is. EMF's Unbelievable. What I remember most about that song is the breakdown, uh-huh. you know, kind of the rappy part, Yes, which I always just like, ugh. <laughs> but the rest of it is way more Brit, poppy than I ever remembered, especially the vocal delivery is really like Manchester, yeah, laid back, kind of stony thing. It, yeah, I kind of love that. It, it feels a little like a stoned Robert Smith. When this came out, it was like a novelty song to me because, you know, 1991, I was like, I was in sub-pop heaven, yeah. so I was like, you know, Mud Honey and yeah. Sonic Youth and Flaming Lips and all, you know, Killdozer and things like that. So it was like the American Underground was kind of where my head was at. So something like that yeah. just seemed like bubble gum. Uh-huh. But then it's kind of fun now to be older and kind of let things in. Yeah. I mean, I get why that was a hit. It's just, it's got cool chords the piano's really cool in it yeah the guitar is a little like corny it's a little corny but it's uh but it's it effective yeah. yeah you know and if ever i dj i'll just bring that one out <laughs> you know what i think it would get the crowd going that's kind of a cool song yeah you know i mean I'm, it's hard for me to separate it from 11 year old me um oh trash rock that you're listening to <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, i can understand that yeah. that's like a like you can't unlock that yeah but um yeah i i think it's a kind of song where I listen to it. It sounds like a one-hit wonder to me. Yeah. I would never go out and, and seek out this album and try to find more about this band based Agreed. on this song. Totally agree. But it's super effective. Yeah. You can't help but like want to kind of move your body to it. Yeah. And there it is. A couple things I wanted to add about the song, though. In 2005, Kraft Foods used this song in an advertisement for its Kraft Crumbles but they changed the song's chorus from You're Unbelievable to It's Crumbelievable. <laughs> Somebody got paid to do that. Yes, That's amazing. Yes. They're like, hey, look what I came up with. 2005. 2005. I think we just have to hear a clip. The Crumbelievable. New Craft Crumbles. Good. They're Crumbelievable. I always think about the person they hired to go in and they're like, three, two, and he's like, it's Crumbelievable. It's like, they're like, all right. Two more times. Yeah. And like, who is that person? Yeah. Like, were they in a band? Were they just someone who was like the engineer? They're like, I'll just lay it down. No problem. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Right. I, it, was, it was not EMF. <laughs> no, no. I mean, at that point in their career, yeah. 14 years later, they might be like, we're there. Yeah. You know? Hey, like, well, we're unbelievable, sure. Yeah. But uh, oh, that is so lazy. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Here's one more thing. I think this is super fascinating. The first cassette that I ever bought with my own money was a Weird Al album called Off the Deep End, which came out, I I believe, in 1992. But one thing that Weird Al always does, he always has a polka medley 
on each of his albums okay. where he takes a bunch of popular songs and he crams them all together and <laughs> makes a polka version. Uh-huh. And the polka song from this particular album, Polka Your Eyes Out, featured all three of these songs that we've heard so far today. In the medley? In the medley, in one song. That's so cool. Yeah. That's me in the corner. Okay, well, we got one more song we're going to listen to, and we're going pretty far down the charts for this one. This is a song that peaked at number 27 on the modern rock charts, and it's a band called 11th Dream Day. Have you heard of this band? I have. They were around quite a while. Yeah, they're still around. Oh, they are? They okay. are. They had a, an album as recent as 2015, and I think they might be in the studio uh, right now. So this is a band that was formed in Chicago in 1983-ish, mm-hmm. around Rick Rizzo and Janet Beveridge Bean. I didn't know they were a band that even charted. They always seem smaller to they're, me. They're pretty small. This is their only charting song, okay. and it was the lower reaches of the modern rock charts. Okay. So, Now, was this... They were on a major label at this point. In 1991, they were on Atlantic. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. But I guess 91 was also the beginning of bands like that getting signed. Yeah. To major labels, you know that they were starting to pick apart the scenes a bit. Yep. So. And it's it's really going to start happening in 92, big time. Yep. Yeah. So in 1991, 11th Dream Day released maybe their fourth album. It's kind of hard to count. Depends what you consider to be an album or not. It's called Lived to Tell. And their single Rose of Jericho is their only song to chart in the U.S. I'm really curious to see if what I think they sound like is what they're going to sound like. Being from Chicago could be anything. Yeah. I've read reviews of the band that describes them frequently as being kind of like Neil Young with a punkier edge to it. Okay. Um, so there's that. And then we also have uh, male-female vocal harmonies going on. So cool. sometimes they get sort of X comparisons. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. But um, we'll see if we agree. All right. Yeah, here it is. Rose of Jericho. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I know that I love those kind of guitar solos that sound like they're going to fall apart. Uh-huh. And it seems like drumming's a little off at times, but it's like very 80s indie rock, yes. college rock kind of thing. I'm kind of amazed that that's charted. Yeah, I mean, for me, listening to this right now, it's it kind of like a breath of fresh air. It's not like I didn't enjoy the other songs, because I do. Right. This one's, it's just got a lot more energy and realness well, to it, and... Um, I can I know who the band is. Yeah, I mean I I'm like okay I can picture in my head what they might be like. I mean most of us started bands in an era of innocence and never thought that we would make records, let alone tour or play. And then 
it starts kind of becoming real and it's always kind of nice to hear things that sound like the production on it. It's like, it doesn't sound like a major label, like stuck their nose in it yet. And we're like, that's not a hit yet. We need some strings or some organ or like slow it down. Right. We can't hear what you're saying. It seems like people are still left to their own devices a bit. That's what's kind of refreshing about it. Yeah. Because I think innocence is a big part of succeeding in music, like making good stuff is not constantly thinking about your audience. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like I could listen to a song like this and go like, yeah, like maybe I could be in a band. Like these people don't seem totally. un, unreachable. And right. Whereas at this point in R.E.M.'s career, the band sounds like a big band. It seems like maybe totally. they're out of your league. Like you couldn't really aspire to that. Yeah. They were already epic. Yeah. Legendary status then. Yeah. Even though they were unlikely heroes. Yes. A song like this, they probably were like, there's no way in hell. Yeah. We're going to, you know, it's like, so we just do what we do. What's also interesting is every single one of these songs, except I think the R.A.M. song, could have taken place in a different time. Like this song could have been 1984. And the Divinal song could have been 1980, you know, um, and EMF. It's like, it could have been like later for all I knew. Like, oh, it was part of the scene that happened that you didn't know about, you know, like, so what a weird combination of songs that none of them have anything to do with each other. Right. But it also kind of showed just where people's like variety, you know what I mean? People were like devouring all sorts of genres. Yep. Okay. Well, that was March, 1991. We should talk a little bit about eyelids and what you're up to and what people could maybe check out if they want to find out more about your band or find out, you know, how they can see you or hear you. Oh, sure. Eyelids was formed by John Moen, who's in the Decemberists, mm-hmm. and myself after we had worked with Robert Pollard and Gotta Buy Voices. And we just decided, let's keep going. And we've known each other since we were teenagers, but we seemed unlikely musical partners because I tend to veer more loud and aggressive music wise and he tends to be a little more folky and introspective and it's created this really cool intersection in our music and we've been around about five years now we have had albums where we had different singers like we did a 45 where gary jarman of the cribs this uk band the cribs that johnny mara was in Mm -hmm. sang lead on both tracks because i wanted a northern english voice on it so i wrote these songs with him in mind and it's just a really fun band. Um, so you can find out uh, musicviolids.com. Okay. We're on Bandcap at Music of Eyelids and, and all over social. But there's we have a lot of cool videos. The people at Rick and Morty animated one of our videos. Oh, nice. Where we all die in it um, <laughs> in cartoonish ways. And um, we have one that is uh, Peter Buck's Sad Birthday Party. Okay. And that song's called Falling Eyes. It's pretty fun to see him. <laughs> Uh, a serenade him at a very sad Peter Buck birthday party. <laughs> is this is this a real birthday party or is it a staged birthday party? It's staged, okay. yeah. But yeah. it was like, but yeah, he was so great in it. <laughs> uh, so he is so important in the music scene and in terms of putting his money where his mouth is and just being inventive. And I love that he is still taking chances and supporting musicians all over the world um, with kind of a go for it attitude. Yeah. So absolutely. Okay. So you said music of eyelids.com. 
Yeah. We have an EP that we did with John Cameron Mitchell of Hedwig and the Angry Inch okay. that comes out in December of all Lou Reed covers. It's a charity record for his mom's Alzheimer's care. Okay. And then our next proper album is out Valentine's Day. It's called The Accidental Falls, and it was... It's all eyelid songs except for one. But all the lyrics were written by Larry Beckett, who was Tim Buckley's lyricist okay. in the 60s and 70s. And so uh, we went through his archives and wrote new songs with his lyrics. But there is one unreleased Tim Buckley, Larry Beckett composition from 1966 that we do. Okay. And, um, and then we'll be on tour. Fantastic. So, Yeah, great. So check that out. Look for eyelids on tour throughout 2020. If anyone has any questions or comments, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in April of 1991. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.